0: Welcome to Emporia State Catholics, a podcast with homilies, talks, reflections, lectures, and other snippets of life from the Diddy Catholic Campus Center. Find out more at DiddyCenter.org. Well, welcome everyone to the Emporia State Catholics podcast. We are beginning to go through one of the greatest books of the 20th century, G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy. I'm with Patrick Callahan. So we chose this book, Orthodoxy, for a few reasons. I mean, one, it's an incredible book. One of, like I said, Chesterton's two greatest books. It basically gives something of a background uh, to his conversion story, which is, which is pretty remarkable. Second reason, it's out of copyright. So we were able to get everybody a free copy very easily. Um, but but it's, it's one of these books. I would say a third reason, I know a lot of people... And a lot of smart people who want to read Chesterton but get frustrated by him. And so we thought, let's let's walk through one of his great books and and help people understand this awesome author that that sometimes people struggle with because his style is uh, not something we're used to in twenty twenty America. So uh, very excited for those of you who've never read Chesterton before. You're about to embark on on a great literary invent, uh, adventure.
1: And it's a lot of fun too.
0: Yeah, a v- lot of fun. Lot yeah. Of
1: fun. I think uh, I don't know, father, when did you first read this?
0: Read Orthodoxy. Yeah. Um, Orthodoxy I read in seminary or just before seminary, but I my introduction to him was Everlasting Man. Mm-hmm. And at first, I mean there were so many times where I'm like what is this guy talking yeah. about here? And then a page later you're like this is brilliant.
1: <laughs> well, Everlasting Man is kind of a beast yeah Uh, orthodoxy is much more digestible uh yeah and i i think i read orthodoxy the first time junior year college uh it was the sort of immediately after the semester had come to its conclusion and coming back at it half a lifetime since let you calculate the age on that one uh it was delightful it's humorous uh more humorous than i i
0: remember and i i know dale alquist who's probably the foremost Chesterton scholar alive, will say Chesterton's writings are ones that you want to read a second, a third time, that you'll discover and appreciate it more when you return to it after some time. Yeah. Besides our readings
1: of it, for the students who are approaching it for the first time, can you tell us a little bit about who is Chesterton? Mm -hmm.
0: Now, Chesterton is, he's a hard man to really put a label upon. Uh, He was an English Uh, journalist by trade. He was born in 1874. He died 1936. He was uh, a journalist, something of a philosopher. Um, You know, I was telling Patrick before we got started here that I went to Rome a few years ago, and uh, through a a mutual friend, I met an English priest, and I brought up Chesterton, and he said, oh, you Americans— You love him as the Catholic apologist. In England, we know him as a writer of mysteries. He he had a famous mystery series with a priest detective named Father Brown. He wrote poetry, he wrote plays, history, economic theory, theology, biographies. He was he was a regarded literary figure of his day. Was also famous for his girth. He was a large man, he was six foot four, he was somewhere around three bills, three hundred pounds. And he converted to Catholicism later in life, so he was, he was baptized in an Anglican church as an infant. His family wasn't, you know, they were kind of off again, on again, religious, uh, but it, it, maybe more nominally religious would be the right way to put it. And he goes through a pretty profound conversion to um, what he calls Orthodox Christianity, and, and in time he becomes a Roman Catholic. One thing I'll I'll mention, C.S. Lewis is a very well-known Christian apologist uh, from Great Britain. What a lot of people don't know is that for a time he was an atheist, and he benefited tremendously from Chesterton's writing. So when he read Everlasting Man, uh, the book we we just referenced— Uh, It it rocked his world, And, and years later, Lewis said, a young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. There are traps everywhere. God is, if I may say it, very unscrupulous. So he's... Impacted millions of people, myself, people, normal people, as well as great people like C.S. Lewis.
1: You know, to put the the book that we're reading in context, though, too, this book comes nearly a decade, if not more, um, no, about eight years, I'm Mm -hmm. sorry, Mm -hmm. between his actual conversion to Roman Catholicism and uh, the writing of Orthodoxy. So Orthodoxy uh, comes out before he becomes a Roman Catholic. Right. So one of the more surprising things is that, at least as an American, you think of him as a Catholic apologist, and you look at orthodoxy as this great work of Catholic apologetics. Again, it's sort of Americans misreading their in their English 20th century authors. I mean, right. same way that people sort of adopt Lewis wholesale as if he were Catholic. Right. We also sometimes make the mistake of thinking that orthodoxy is something that, that's written from the, the heart of a, the, the Catholic Church. Now, obviously... And we wouldn't be reading it if it didn't align a lot with Catholic doctrine.
0: Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, I—yeah, I I, mean, I, yeah. and I, I, I think you see part of the reason Lewis is so popular is they come from this branch of the Anglican Church uh, that tried to hold on to as much of the ancient faith as they could. Um, and Chesterton, in time, decided that uh, to truly be practicing this ancient faith, he had to Come to the Catholic Church, uh, which we believe is the fullness of God's truth and grace. Um, Lewis never completed that journey here, but uh, yeah, there. This is this is a, a very very rich book, uh, even if Chesterton wasn't Catholic when he wrote it.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Orthodoxy then um, was published in 1908, but mm-hmm. the controversies that led to it are from the few years before that. Mm-hmm. Um, is particularly with a book called Heretics. Yeah, can you give me, Father, a little bit more about the the context of of Chesterton writing this book?
0: Yeah, so you know you see this. He actually talks about this in the very beginning in chapter one, and he talks about this uh, Mister Street uh, who who says, "I will begin to worry about my philosophy when Mister Chesterton has given us his." So Heretics is a book where he criticizes. Um, He criticizes a number of of philosophical ideas in a lot of contemporary writers. And I should say this, uh, I probably should have mentioned this in the biography, um, one of the hallmarks of Chesterton was he was really good friends with the men that he criticized and had these very public debates with. So H.G. Wells, George Bernard Shaw, these were men who disagreed with Chesterton on the most fundamental of questions— um, and they they debated this very publicly in their writing. Yet and they were they were friends.
1: And it's not a one. We should concede too that it's not a one sided um, courtesy. That yeah. that both Wells and absolutely and George Bernard Shaw, you know, they they had a love for Chesterton absolutely. and Chesterton's uh, partner in crime Hilaire Belloc. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's kind of the opposite of you know the <laughs> beginning of the twenty first century, where where everyone wants to you know I hate to say it, but uh, Sort of out other people, rush them from the public stage, accuse the other of of spreading propaganda. And I I say that both from the Catholic side, sort of introspecting and and looking at the other side where we're being asked to be quiet. And uh, anyway, it's just a a whole other
0: time. Right, right. And so, you know, Chesterton has this... this, you know, great line where he says it was perhaps an, incaus- an incautious subject- suggestion to make to a person only too ready to write books upon the feeblest prov- uh, provo- provocation. Uh, so Chesterton was basically challenged, and, and they said, "Look, it's a lot easier to poke holes in other people's philosophy. Why don't you give us your own?" And Chesterton said, "Okay, I will."
1: Yeah, from my own observations, which are are in the the study guide too, is that. He has this preface, uh, Chesterton does where he lays out and I never really noticed how tightly constructed a philosophical argument was there when I first approached it coming back, uh, this summer to, to orthodoxy, I'm looking at it and I'm seeing like, he's very clear, like, here's my thesis here, my postulates, uh, let me go on and explain everything else. That, that point, right. Where it's all about a philosophical challenge, Mm -hmm. right. Uh, you're criticizing other people's hypotheses, Mm -hmm. so what's your alternative? Mm -hmm. And he will say there in the preface, right, to an attempt, an explanation, not of whether the Christian faith can be believed, but of how I personally have come to believe. Right. Uh, Which is one of the, um, as we get further, and I don't want to jump into like chapter two and mysticism as an answer, but he essentially says that he can't, uh, or he won't. That's not what orthodoxy is attempting to do. Mm-hmm. Orthodoxy is a is a personal testimony in some way, more than a philosophical proof.
0: Yes, it, that's correct. Though it it's not devoid of of philosophy, right? It's it it talks about this, for lack of a better word, unorthodox route Chesterton takes to orthodoxy. Um, and and to his discovery of the of the truth there. But but you're right, it it is not a, a proof, uh philosophical proof in any sense of the word. I mean this is his this is his journey back to back to really to this orthodox faith. Yeah
1: you know, reason is the tool and you need faith to have light by which to see and, and operate the tool. Otherwise you're just hammering everywhere. Right. To be able to recognize this is a nail and this is not a nail. Reason is that hammer that if you're just operating it blindly in the dark, everything is a nail, right? Uh, right, and that's what's cap- uh, covered in chapter two. Again, I keep alluding to further chapter. <laughs> Sorry about that. So he starts out though that that's in the in the preface, but he starts out the whole thing with this analogy about a a man in a yacht. Yes. And you sent me some pretty extensive notes, so I'm gonna just you know kick the can over to you,
0: yeah. and ask if you could introduce chapter one here with some sure. reflections on. The man in the yacht. Well, let me let me just start with what Chesterton says. Okay. So after giving the reasons why he wrote this book, Chesterton he starts talking about this idea for a story that he's never gotten around to writing, right? And he says that this story is about an English yachtsman who slightly miscalculate miscalculated his course and discovered England under the impression that it was a new island in the South Seas. And so Chesterton tells us he's either been too busy or too lazy to write this, which is hilarious if you think about it. I mean, you would think like too busy or too lazy are kind of polar opposites, but a little bit of his humility there—that um, y- you know, maybe he's he's—it's uh, it's his own sloth that's gotten in the way of this. But he says we're going to use it now for the purpose of philosophical illustration. Um, now, you might have started reading this chapter and you got to this point, and and the thought crossed your mind. What is this guy talking about? This English yachtsman who thinks he's discovered a new island and it's really England. This is insane. This is a stupid idea for a story. Well, this analogy is Chesterton at his finest, and it's going to require you, require all of us to just say, all right, let's see where he's going with this. Okay, so give him the benefit of the doubt. And this will happen a lot in Chesterton. You'll read something, you're like, what is he talking about? And it's only after several pages that you're like, wow, that's brilliant. But, but we got to hang in there with him. So he works out this analogy. It's about discovering something old as something new. You know, ultimately, what Chesterton is doing is he's using this analogy to describe his own intellectual journey back to Orthodox Christianity. Uh, but first, he was a yachtsman who thought he found an uncharted island what does that mean well he was he was searching for truth for purpose for meaning um there was a book published in 1937 not long after chesterton passed called the laughing prophet the seven virtues in gk chesterton was written by uh by a belgian author uh who's a contemporary of chesterton's anyways he has some good insight into chesterton's search for truth and meaning he said that uh Uh, After leaving St. Paul's school, he was seriously affected by agnosticism, right? This was kind of in the air at the time among his friends and university students. Um, And for several years, he worked himself through these contemporary philosophers like uh, philosophers and literary figures like Huxley and Tolstoy, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, uh, and he cultivated all the isms which attracted uh, the youth of the day. Uh, he was mixing with artists, with writers, with revolutionists in the London Bohemian circle, and he only emerged from these wild experiences to uh, discover that he had sought uh, very far a truth which had been waiting for him at home. Okay? So Chesterton was searching, and he uh, dives into all that the modern world proposes will lead, uh, lead to truth, will lead to meaning, supposedly cutting-edge philosophy, radical and sometimes dangerous political movements you know i've read um you uh, several sources that chesterton dabbled in the occult uh, dabbled in ouija boards even more dangerous as well yet thankfully for both chesterton's soul and the millions of souls who would benefit from his work he he wasn't snared by this darkness and so chesterton was the english yachtsman who discovered england meaning um he as as this belgian writer uh how do you pronounce the name? Kamertz? C-A-M-M-A-E-R-T-S? I'm going to go with yes. Yes, Kamertz. Okay. (laughs) That's why I didn't say it earlier. But he built up his faith on the wreckage of the false creeds in which he had indulged, in which he had found wanting. After his wanderings through a sea of illusions, England appeared to him in a new light, and he was able to look upon her solid shores with a new sense of wonder. Uh, He began to preach to skeptics and heretics, and he was admirably equipped to do so, having suffered from the same doubts and indulged the same errors. So, in summary, what's this yachtsman analogy about? Well, Chesterton says in chapter one, he gradually learnt from the truth of some stray legend or from the falsehood of some dominant philosophy things that I might have learnt from my catechism if I had ever learnt it. There may or may not be some entertainment in reading how I found it last in an anarchist club or a Babylonian temple, what I might have found in the nearest parish church. And this is really what I think he's talking about is something most of us can relate to. You know, I, I, you know personally, I grew up Catholic. We went to mass. I went to Catholic school. I go to college. I kind of drift away. I, ca- I start looking down these different avenues, perhaps, for meaning and, and purpose, and you find them empty, and then... Um, you you stumble onto something that seems profoundly new and wonderful, and lo and behold, it's it's what you had at your neighborhood parish church all along. You just didn't recognize or appreciate it.
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things that jumped out at me this time, um, you know, at the Humanitas Institute, the whole idea behind what we do is is wonder. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to get it in a little again, chapter two. Uh, the the basis for a proper philosophy is a poetic imagination. Mm -hmm. And he's going to lay out here in chapter one, where he talks about the the fundamental assumption of orthodoxy is that there's a desirability of an active and imaginative life. And that's the verbatim quote. And that's kind of where he's going back and forth on um, something old, but you're seeing it for the first time. Right. Um, and it's a way of sort of reaching out and grasping towards uh, a way of, of seeing eternity or seeing, not necessarily eternity, um, seeing the, the, the world as the way that God sees the world, perhaps in some, some fashion. Um, something that fills you both with longing and comfort.
0: Yeah. And, you know, there, this, is, uh, this is something he hits on in his biography of St. Francis of Assisi. Which is wonderful. Another great classic you should read, but it's it's in copyright, so we can't give you a free copy. Uh, but he talks about how Francis goes up into the caves of Mont Subasio, and he comes out like a man walking on his his hands, walking upside down, and he sees the world upside down, and he's able to see it as it really is, completely and totally dependent upon God. If you were to, if you've ever been to Upper Assisi. If you were to look at it upside down, it would look like that whole city is about to come crashing down any instant, mm-hmm. but it doesn't because everything is supported in being by God, and and so Francis looks weird to the world uh, because he's he he sees everything from a new insight, um, but it's 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 uh, this this transformative experience that alters his vision. Obviously, what Francis went through and what Chesterton goes through are different things, but it's a similar idea, uh, that, that Chesterton goes out on this search for truth, and he comes back and he finds the truth where he least expected it.
1: And it's a a fundamental grounding, though, too. As I'm reading the chapter, I'm looking and saying, you know, poetry isn't just this phase on the path to philosophy. Mm -hmm. If you don't have this poetic imagination, this ability to see the world as new and strange, Mm -hmm. to realize that the rhinoceros is a very odd-looking beast. (laughs) Right. And I I was watching a movie last night with my children where there was a, a rhinoceros in it, and they were talking about just how fantastical the creature is. Right. We've become sort of stale uh, as we get older in life, the objects in the room, same way that you forget that you hung that really great painting or poster mm-hmm. in your, your living room or in your dorm room, and you see it every day, and you just walk by it. Um, if you're married, you know, you, it, there's moments where you might take for granted like the loveliness of your spouse. If you're a priest, there's moments where you take for granted the loveliness of praying the divine office. Oh, yeah or anything like that and it just becomes the the routine and then suddenly you're shocked uh, and marvelled
0: yeah and i think it requires us to slow down and do something that our culture in 2020 doesn't really value which is reflect on everyday experiences and you know like my my brother and sister-in-law they they had a baby in january and i haven't been able to see my nephew too much because of this uh COVID 19 but you know i was sent a video of him babbling baby talking and it reminded me of something dr kenneth Howe said when he came and, and gave one of our rise nights in november he talked about how universities ha- have tried for decades to teach apes to speak mm-hmm. they invested millions of dollars in this et cetera, et cetera. it and they they have essentially no good results of it but a human baby learns English from the moment he or she is born. And and just the wonder of... No, we have a... a well, sorry, Peter now is uh,
1: 16, 17 months old. Mm-hmm. And he's really hitting a language explosion right now. And it's yeah. fantastical to see just every, every object, every word. He picks it up and plays with it. Um, well, except for the word "no," the word "no," it's not so much wonder as sort of the uh, the wine connoisseur's delight of, yeah. a, of a toddler learning the word "no." You, yeah. you, you hold it up to the light, you swirl it around, you 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 breathe it in, you get all the the texture of the the wonderful right. word that is "no." Right. But all these other words that he's picking up: um, ball, cat, uh, play, uh, the names of of my wife and myself and siblings and all these other things that he wants, there's a magic enchantedness to the world right. that, that he has not lost yet.
0: Right, even what is something's name?
1: Yeah, and that's a, at the heart of a, of a religion, Christianity, <laughs> yeah, right. where the, the word became God. Right. Besides the yachtsman then, which is this wonderful lead-in to this fundamental assumption, which is it's just sad that not many people would agree with that assumption, that life is... Desirable, Mm -hmm. and that you desire an active life and you desire an imaginative life. Mm -hmm. And there's this whole other imaginative mode of engaging with the world, which doesn't try to dissect it like the scientist, uh, doesn't try to classify it into my own story, my own narrative, as if I were this egotistical maniac. Right. Sorry. this is my own little uh, uh, hobby horse here, Father, go for it. Go in the for church, it. because we yeah. we hear all the time about we need to deconstruct the systematic way of thinking, we, mm-hmm. we've been stuck in systematic theology for too long, Right. we don't need textbooks, we need good stories in the church, but stories are—it's <laughs> right. it, an egotistical way of, of viewing a world where uh, it doesn't embrace what the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber called the I-Thou relationship. Right, right. The the otherness that invites us to discover ourself. Right. Anyway,
0: sorry, I'm gonna get off of that hobby horse the only other thing I, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about what Chesterton means by the word orthodoxy. Yeah, I was going to go there too. Okay.
1: So can yeah, can we talk about that? Let's do. Because it's one of those things that I missed when I first read the book was yeah. what is orthodoxy, and I would suspect that there's going to be a number of people who are reading the book along with us this summer, who um, read the chapter and were like me the first, second, third time I read yeah. the book and didn't actually pay attention that he has a definite thing in mind. So, yeah. So since He's not Catholic at this at this point. His use of the term orthodoxy is not going to necessarily align with the Catholic understanding. Right. Um, before we get into his definition, then, um, can you help me understand? You know, what does the Church mean when we talk about? Usually, the Church distinguishes between two things, right? right. Orthodoxy and yes. orthopraxy. Yes. So, can you maybe give us a little yeah. bit about what those two things are and how we distinguish them?
0: Right. So, orthodoxy, we're talking right belief orthopraxis would be right practice, right practice. Um, so orthodoxy, you know, this is, this is the, the truth, uh, that has been revealed by God, that's been handed down in the deposit of faith, that's been articulated by the magisterium, uh, that we believe. Um, and so, you know, if somebody deviates from orthodox, uh, thought, then it's, it's heterodox, right? Um, orthopraxis uh, you know, right, uh, right practice. This refers to uh, how we live the moral life. Um, I think you could probably also lump in liturgy under orthopraxis, um, you know, how we worship God, how we, uh, how we live out this right belief that this, this truth that has been revealed to us by God.
1: But the two are so intimately related that right. we often stumble one way or another. I think of, um, yeah, as we're talking about it right now. I'm going through and thinking about some of the early Roman emperors and reasons they didn't understand Christianity. Because for the Roman orthopraxy was more important. Orthodoxy was sort of an untouched matter. Right. So why are we having why is Nero having trouble with the Christians? Why is you know, Trajan writing to Pliny and back and forth about the Christians and what are we going to do about them? It's not about what they believe, it's about what they do. Right. Um, and it, again, so many Christian heresies that have spun off over the years have all sort of tipped the scales one way or another, um, either throwing orthodoxy aside and focusing on orthopraxy or divorcing orthodoxy from orthopraxy so that... You know, you can as long as you believe the right thing, you can go ahead and do whatever you right. want.
0: Right, right, right. There, you're right. There needs to be a balancing between the two. Um, and yet, there's a, a hierarchy too. Yeah, I would argue. And and well, let's go into to what Chesterton yeah. has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, well, let me let me also say this too before we jump into Chesterton that I think in common American parlance, orthodoxy means Eastern Orthodox, yeah, Greek Orthodox. Right. That's obviously not what he's talking about. So, um. But what Chesterton says is, he he says, when the word orthodoxy is used here to mean uh, the Apostles' Creed is understood by everyone calling himself Christian until a very short time ago, and the general historic conduct of those who held such creed, okay? So you might hear that and think, well, that's pretty good. Uh, you know, he's talking about the Apostles' Creed. We, we obviously recite the Apostles' Creed. Um, now... Chesterton in 1908 uh, would not have agreed with everything we believe and vice versa. We wouldn't have agreed with everything he believed. Uh, this is this is similar, from what I can remember, it's been a while since I've read this book, it's similar to what Lewis tries to do in mere Christianity.
1: Yeah, and there's a number of, look, there's a certain virtue uh, to it as well. Right. Uh, I know that there's a wonderful um, thing down in Wichita called the Eighth Day Institute, mm-hmm. and you know they take that from Chesterton and Lewis where at their meetings they do go through the creed together, right? As sort of like the common uh, bond, the common glue, and then they'll say, "Well, look, there's a, a certain amount of nuance around what we mean by certain things in in the creed." So, you know, is believe in the Holy Catholic Church? Is it a, a small C or right. a big C big, Catholic? Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, and so there are those those things there, but I. F- I find that very interesting, though, that he starts there, and you can kind of reduce it. He says, it's the creed, and it's what those in the creed do. Yes, yes. And I'm thinking and extrapolating from that, that's just faith and morals, which is— Or
0: or you could even say, you know, he says, is understood— by everyone concept Christian, you could even say there's a little bit of a tradition, uh, an acceptance of, of yeah. A, a no, it cer-
1: yeah. It, cer- yeah it, it certainly is. Yeah, I cut out when I was writing my notes here. I cut out the little bit that follows the the Apostles' Creed. Yeah. But he, he says like it's not just the Apostles' Creed. Right. You, the Apostles' Creed has to mean a, a certain right. Thing. Right. And then you know, so there's a tradition of interpreting that faith. Mm-hmm. There's a mm-hmm. scripture and there's a faith. But then he says there's a general historic conduct of those who hold such a creed. Right. And he, that word general, right, is a deceptive word because it's a throwaway word to us. Right. But general means it, it comes from a, a genus, it's a type, right? It's, it's a family of behavior. Yes. And it's historic, right? That is, it's entered into and it's witnessed by uh, a tradition, a testimony. Right. So there's both a, a type and an instantiation of the type in history and he's not talking about everything that christians do right. he's not talking about um you know you littering on the side of the road he's not talking about the time i got angry at a neighbor he's he's talking about specific types of actions that qualify under the moral category
0: that the the genus comes from or looks to the faith right 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 no that's absolutely right and I think, uh, again, I know we don't—we're both kind of chomping at the bit to get to chapter 2, but, you know, I think you see this in chapter 2 with just a an approach to uh, the world. You know, he'll talk about original sin and talk about it as as just—it's common sense, right? There's evil in the world. And, uh, you know, he sees it as—he he has this—you know, I'm going to paraphrase, but he says it's the one doctrine that can be proved— in, in the Christian faith because of of how obvious evil is in the world. Right.
1: And when I've talked to people who say that they don't like Christians because of original sin, it's often a misinterpretation of what original sin yeah. is. Right. Right. And, and So at least in my words, and correct me if I'm wrong, father, original sin, at least an easy way to prove it again, not the strict catechism right. definition right, 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 right. is that original sin is just the fallen state of the world as you see it. Yeah. Um. You know, it's, the the sadness of children, <laughs> you know, the the kingdom of God being like children, right? Right. But at the same time, I have children. You know what? Yeah. And they can be monstrous to each other. Oh, sure. They can they can kick. They can bite. Uh, they can yell at each other. Right. And you know, and, and people.
0: Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, I think I think when we're talking original sin, I mean, again, not from a technical standpoint, it's a it's a uh, disharmony is introduced, disharmony between man and god. Right. D- disharmony between us and creation, disharmony among ourselves, between, you know, within families and friendships and relationships, nations, uh and then within our own interior life there's disharmony. You know, we do what we do not want. And so if we 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 have this belief that we recognize to be true, if I realize I'm a fallen man, you know, I'm going to <laughs> I I'm I'm going to act a certain way, right? I'm going to try and Prevent. Uh, I'm going to try to not put myself in circumstances where it would be easy to fall. You know.
1: Yeah. Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. <laughs> but it's 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 wonderful um, just discovering this in Chesterton again. Things yep. that um, I've gone and read. You know, so much more and and grown in the faith. You know, I sort of rediscovered my faith in college. So Chesterton was one of those things I read fresh from that. Um, read lots more Chesterton, but coming back to Orthodoxy here. I'm realizing that, again, it's like uh, I'm the yachtsman when it comes to, to Chesterton. I thought I had categorized <laughs> him, I thought I would put him away uh, as this thing. And then I'm coming back and saying, wow, there's this grounding of philosophy and poetry um, that I uh, misremembered or misunderestimated. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm making up words here.
0: No, I, I feel very much the same. I mean, it's been, it had been a while since I've read Orthodoxy. You know, I, I, Everlasting Man made such an impact on my life because it was the first one that I read. I was 23. Uh, it had this profound impact on me, um, and, and so I would often get in these debates, these stupid seminary debates about which book was better. And so I felt like I, I was Well, always it's the
1: longer one. And you you know, yeah. you're of an age where you kinda wanna be a hipster millennial. Yeah. Right. So you wanna Hell be yeah. there first. And if everyone likes orthodoxy, yeah. you gotta you gotta I know, that's raise right. up everlasting man. That's
0: right. That's right. I liked Chesterton before he was cool. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's a it's a it's a fault to not see that there's something so plainly plainly liked by everyone is also yeah, really good. Absolutely. So Absolutely. this is one of the reasons why I'm kind of excited for us to to
0: keep meeting here over the mm-hmm. the summer here and discussing uh, the rest of the chapters. I something else I would I would say if you have specific questions, if something doesn't make sense, if you want us to talk yeah. about, it, even if it's a chapter that we've already hit on, uh, shoot us an email. So, you know, just to give you a little teaser or preview of chapter two, it's called the Maniac, uh, and he is is going to talk first about. Original sin. He's going to get into talking about that and the fact of original sin, and um, and and he's going to go from there to talk about rationalism and the and the narrowness of rationalism when it comes to these truths, these these mysterious truths that are um, that can't be enca- encapsulated in one narrow concept or ideology necessarily. There's, there's a divine quality to them, and, and as the cliche goes, God cannot be put into a box. There's, there's a real emphasis here on the, the I don't know if superiority is the right word, of poetry versus this narrow rationalism. Mm-hmm. Poetry which is able to uh, hold the mystery in wonder. Uh, which is able to appreciate the paradox of these mysteries.
1: Right, because the, the wonder doesn't even hold it. Wonder just acknowledges yeah. the distance between the self and the other.
0: Yeah, hold it's not the right word. I, I, I'm thinking more of like appreciating, you know, yeah. like like I... I well, I'm desiring. Desiring, yes. Yeah, yeah, and I
1: think that's the uh, understanding that you have sort of in the, the longer Catholic tradition is that um, the misinterpretation of Catholicism. Catholicism is not about banishing desire. Right. It's about training and, and encouraging your desire to to build up to what it really wants. Sure. We're, we're, so, we're so afraid of asking for the big thing, and it's what God wants to give us. It's like, uh, again, sorry, my analogies are based off of my parenting, but it's kind of like a child who like, I'm planning on like, I just got like this big thing of ice cream and it's in yeah. the fridge. And they're like, hey, can I have a couple M&Ms? And you're like, <laughs> no, you can't have the M&Ms. And they get really disappointed and then there's this moment where I'm like, because I have this huge thing of ice cream that I yeah. want to give you, uh, which would also be appealing to Chesterton. So it's a good way to wrap up my own yes. notes on chapter one yes. is imagining Chesterton eating a huge bowl of ice cream.
0: Yeah, that, that is a good image to end on.
1: All right. So thank you so much for coming along today. Um, just to end our little book club here, since we are believers and we invite you and hope you are a believer or may come to be one. Uh, we want to look at the Apostles' Creed, which is the the core of Orthodoxy, and we thought we would pray that together here. So, all
0: right. Father, all right, we'll begin. Name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the, the Father, Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and, and in Jesus Christ, Christ his, his only, only Son, Lord, our Lord, who, who was conceived, conceived by the Holy
1: Spirit, Spirit born, born of the, of the Virgin Mary, Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, Pilate was crucified, crucified, died, and was, and was buried.